people who self-harm do not do so for attention-seeking purposes. If you remember nothing else from today, please, please try to remember that. Because self-harm is one of the most stigmatized and misunderstood mental health symptoms out there. It is very rarely for attention-seeking purposes. And the vast majority of people who self-harm do so for emotion regulation purposes. Self-harm is an emotion regulation tool. It's a dangerous one. It's an emotion regulation tool that can carry some very difficult long-term, potentially permanent consequences. It is one I try very hard to help people stop using for those reasons, but that's usually what it's for. And the fact that it so often gets labeled as attention-seeking just creates one more distressing emotion, which the person who is already struggling with self-harm then needs to regulate. Because now, in addition to whatever was already going on before you called them attention-seeking, they now feel invalidated, misunderstood, and completely alone. Welcome back to the Psychology of Depression and Anxiety. I'm your host, Dr. Scott. I'm a clinical psychologist who specializes in people with severe symptoms of depression and anxiety. I'm also the author of the book, For When Everything is Burning. Today, I hope to provide you with a greater understanding of why people hurt themselves on purpose. And at the end, I will give you some tools to use in place of self-harm. So whether you're watching this today as the individual who struggles with self-harm, as a person who is supporting and trying to help someone else who struggles with self-harm, or just out of pure intellectual curiosity, my goal is to provide you with both understanding and alternatives. So I really, really want you to understand that the majority of people who engage in self-harm behaviors are incredibly embarrassed about it, incredibly ashamed about it, and very secretive about it. And if someone who struggles with self-harm opens up to you about it, most likely they are not doing so because they want your attention or because they want your pity. They are most likely doing so because you have earned some level of trust with them. They see you as a safe person, as a supportive person, and maybe even as someone who can help them. It is a big deal for someone to be open about their self-harm behaviors. These are not things that people usually will discuss with others. And if you want to know how secretive people are about it, let me give you some examples. I'm talking about people who wear long sleeves in 100 degree weather to cover the scars on their arms. I'm talking about people who get expensive, painful tattoos to try to blend in with their burns. I'm talking about people who avoid seeking medical care, including pain management, when they very clearly need it because they are so buried in shame for the behaviors that they have engaged in. That's the level of self-internalized shame and stigma and judgment that we are dealing with. And so if somebody has been dealing with all of that and they decide to open up to you today, and you regard them as attention-seeking, it's not going to go well. It's not. I have been a therapist for 13 years as of the creation of this video. I do not believe 
that I have ever worked with someone who struggles with self-harm, who was doing it for attention-seeking purposes. I am not saying those people don't exist. It's not 0%, but it's a low percent. It certainly is not above 50%. It is very, very uncommon. And I've worked with a lot of people who self-harm. So it's not like I'm basing that on the small sample size. It's a lot of people. It's usually for emotion regulation purposes, I promise you. It's also not always a behavior that correlates with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. That is a common misconception that I think is created by the fact that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or DSM, which is the textbook that contains all of the mental health diagnoses and all the criteria for those diagnoses, only lists self-harm as a symptom of borderline personality disorder. I'm not sure why that was so hard for me to figure out how to say, but borderline is the only diagnosis that has self-harm listed as a symptom. That's what I'm trying to say. And because it's the only diagnosis that has self-harm listed as an official symptom, I think it causes a lot of lay people or, or physicians, for example, to think this always means this. In fact, self-harm behaviors do not automatically mean that a person has any mental health condition at all. There are probably people out there who have self-harmed who wouldn't meet criteria for any mental health condition. That might seem like a stretch, but I'll explain that shortly. Among people who self-harm, it is simply an expression of overwhelming emotional distress and a lack of support or coping tools or general hopelessness. I, I, am, I am struggling so much, I cannot bear the feeling that I'm feeling any longer, and I don't know any other way to make this go away. And so if you look at it from that lens, it's very similar to things like excessive consumption of alcohol, gambling, impulsive shopping, impulsive sexual behavior, disordered eating, all of which are typically emotion regulation behaviors. People usually do these things when they are very unhappy or very upset and they are looking for some type of escape from the feeling. So many of these self-destructive patterns are just people who are looking for a way out. They don't want to make their lives worse. They don't want to hurt themselves. They don't want to screw up their lives. They just want to get past this feeling that has been stuck inside of them for so long and that no one has been able to help them figure out how to get away from. That is the number one reason people self-harm. And so that could be someone with depression. That could be someone with anxiety. That can be someone with post-traumatic stress disorder. That's a particularly the common one, actually. This could be someone with borderline I meant to say bipolar disorder, and I just made a total fool out of myself and said borderline after telling you it's not always borderline. Bipolar and borderline kind of have the same acronym, so that's what happened there. This could be someone with schizophrenia. This could be someone who is just really, really backed into a corner in their own life and doesn't know what to do and doesn't actually have a chronic mental health condition. It doesn't mean anything diagnostically, except this person is really down in it right now and they need some help. That's what it means. Because think, just really think about that. So the reason self-harm works, and, and if you're listening to this on, on podcast, works as in air quotes here, because I want to make sure that this doesn't come off as a defense of self-harm or like a pro self-harm message, because it is not that. 
Self-harm is a very, very dangerous thing to do. And almost everyone who has struggled with self-harm really wishes they'd never found it because I mean this both literally and metaphorically, those scars do not fade. But there is an intention hierarchy in your brain. And so there are certain types of stimuli in your mind that are prioritized higher than others. Emotional distress is prioritized very, very high in your mental hierarchy. But do you know what's prioritized even higher than emotional distress? Physical pain. Immense physical pain is typically the top priority because what could be more important than intense present moment physical pain? What could be a more clear sign of danger or threat than an injury? Basically nothing. That's pretty much the top of your hierarchy. So imagine being in so much emotional turmoil that you would rather injure yourself and experience all the physical pain that goes along with that injury. And I'm not, I'm gonna give a slight trigger warning here. I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna very generally talk about some formats of self-harm. I'm not gonna get graphic, okay? But imagine being in so much emotional distress that you look around and you see a knife or a razor or a lighter or your own fist or a wall and you think, I would rather injure myself with that tool than continue to feel what I'm feeling right now. That's why people self-harm. And if you have not ever experienced a level of distress, emotional distress that has pushed you to that point, you are very, very fortunate. You are. And, and I know you might not know that, but, but you are. Because these feelings are real. Our minds can be nightmarish sometimes and sometimes we will do anything to escape them including damaging disfiguring or even mutilating our bodies not on purpose but because we cannot think of a better way out so please try to understand that if you're dealing with someone who struggles with self-harm now i don't want to be all doom and gloom today you know me by now, maybe, maybe not. I shouldn't assume that. But I try to make sure that every piece of content I create ends with practical strategies so that you always come away from anything you hear from me with at least one idea for something that you can try. So we can use that same internal hierarchy in your brain that prioritizes physical pain above emotional distress. We can kind of hijack that channel in ways that are self-harm-like, but are not as dangerous or problematic as the more typical self-harm behaviors to still get some level of relief from these thoughts or feelings that just won't go away without really hurting yourself. And the key to being able to do that is your five senses, sight, touch, taste, sound, and smell. Any extremely intense sensory experience will trigger the same neurological pathway that physical pain does. But we don't have to create pain to do that. Any intense sensation will suffice. So let's think about taste, for example. If you are eating something that is extremely spicy or extremely sour, for example, like overwhelmingly spicy or overwhelmingly sour, 
if you've ever done that, if you've ever done like the death chip challenge or had those like nuclear waste candies or anything like that, or even just something like, like sliced up a lemon or a lime and like just sucked on it in the moment when that sensory experience hits your system, what were you thinking about? The answer is probably nothing other than what you were experiencing physically in that moment, because it's such an overwhelming sensation that you can, there's no room in your brain to focus on anything but that. It's taking all your resources to cope with like, what is happening to my body right now? And that's the same thing that self-harm does. So you can use flavors to basically simulate the relief you get from self-harm without actually harming yourself. Now I know, and this is going to be true for every single idea I give you here. You could use these things in a self-harming way, you know, like, like you could dump a bottle of hot sauce in your mouth or something like crazy hot sauce. Like that would probably be self-harm. I mean, don't do that, please. Like just try not to, but used in moderation these can activate the same pathway without creating some of the long-term physical and emotional damage that more typical forms of self-harm behavior do. Um, touch. So touch is typically what we're using when we engage in self-harm. There are non-self-harm ways to give yourself a similar experience. Temperature is a good one. If you hold something really warm or really cold, again, not, not, not so warm or so cold, it's going to actually permanently hurt you. But even just something like holding a warm cup of coffee or tea or taking a bag of ice cubes or like a freezer pack out of your freezer and maybe wrapping it in um, like a washcloth or something like that and holding that, putting your feet in uh, like a tub of really, really warm water, all of these things give you an intense present moment sensation to focus on that can be grounding and regulating and stimulating and help you get out of your head for a little bit. Um, if anyone uses foam rollers, those things that kind of look like, well, they look like foam because that's what they are. Um, and you kind of roll your body on them. It basically gives you like a deep tissue massage. Those things are intense. I mean, they can be, I can only do it in certain parts of my body for like very, very short bursts because it is, it, it's a little bit painful. It's not like self-harm painful, but like it, it's an intense sensation. Um, they make acupuncture mats now. I've not personally tried that one, but that's the exact same principle or acupuncture in general is too. I just know that it's kind of expensive and cumbersome to set up. Um, but there's ways you can do that at home on your own now. You can use smell to simulate the, the self-harm pathway. Don't use calming or relaxing sense. That's actually not what we're going for here. Remember, we want intensity. We want to activate this neurological pathway in your brain that says, holy crap, what is happening right now? Something crazy is happening right here, right now, and I got to pay attention to it. So think really energizing, sharp, strong sense. Um, so you could carry like some oils with you, for example. Um, citrus tends to be really sharp or something like cinnamon or clove. You want something strong. You want something that's almost a little off-putting, makes you go, whoa, what is that right now? We're not looking for like lavender or something like that. You know what I mean? Hopefully you get the point here. Um, you can use sound. You can listen to things that are very, very stimulating and very intense. I still think that's why I used to, and to some degree still do listen to a lot of heavy metal because it's, it's an intense sensory sensation. 
if you're really, really in your head about something and you put on some Lorna Shore or something like that, you'll you'll probably be focused on that for a little bit, because especially if you don't typically listen to that kind of music, it, it's a lot. Um, I will say here's the one I haven't figured out is sight. Um, like don't don't look into the sun. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a stupid joke. It's not a joke. It's just, it that's actually the first thing my brain thought of when I was thinking about making this video is how could you use sight? Instead of self-harm, I'm like, hmm, stare directly at the sun. You shouldn't do that. So not that. Um, maybe you guys can help me out because I'm I'm a little stuck on this one. If you can think of a way that you could use your sense of sight to experience an intense present moment stimuli that might actually take you out of ruminative stuck thought patterns for a while, help me out. Let me know. Maybe you'll maybe you'll make me a better therapist. Maybe you'll help me help somebody else. And, and unlock this fifth sense that for 13 years, I have not figured out how to incorporate into treatment. So yeah, if you think of anything, please let me know. So that's the practical application. If Again, if you're the person struggling with self-harm, think about how you can you know, discreetly and conveniently bring some of these things along with you when you're out and about or keep them nearby in your home, keep them closer ideally, then your self-harm implements. Because when we're experiencing extremely strong emotional distress, we tend to get really impulsive. And a lot of times the tool that we will use to regulate is literally just the closest thing to us. So if you can keep self-harm implements less accessible to you and keep these substitutions that we've discussed today more accessible to you, you dramatically increase your odds of using the substitutions, which long-term is what we want. If you're here as a support person today, think about how you can encourage people to use these substitutions instead, maybe even offer them to people. Like if you know, if you can see this person is really struggling right now and you think they might be at risk for self-harm, maybe just offer them one of these resources instead. Hand it to them, offer to do it with them, offer to go somewhere and get stuff with them. Um a lot of times just the support itself means a lot too, because like I said, this is such a, there's so much shame and there's so much isolation with this because although self-harm is not uncommon because people are so ashamed about it, you have probably interacted with way more people who struggle with self-harm than you realize. And they didn't tell you about it and they probably covered it up. Like physically, you probably weren't able to see it. So you never knew. I guarantee you've met many, many people who self-harm. It's not uncommon, but it's such a lonely thing to be dealing with because you kind of feel like you're the only one in the world because no one really wants to talk about it usually. You're not alone. There are many, many others like you. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you unappreciative of life or your body, or your support, or anything. It means you've experienced a level of distress that not a lot of people understand. And you weren't taught how to deal with it. That's all it means. And hopefully some of the tools I've given you today will help change that. As always, if they do not, if you go out and try all this stuff and you're like, I'm in just the same spot as I was before, and I'm self-harming just as much as I was before. I don't know what to do. Let me know in the comments and I'll make a follow-up and we'll keep going until we figure this out. I'll see you next time. Take care.